توسعون Okay, so does it work now? Yes, yes, okay, sorry. So, so you may have seen that on the program, uh, Anne-Laure Delat uh, was supposed to chair today's conversation and also react to some of the uh, points um, of the annual report of the European Fiscal Board, but she is sick today, and so um, uh, I, I'm stepping in, and I'm, of course, delighted and pleased to step in and chair uh, our discussion with uh, Professor Niels Tigerson. Um, I think Niels doesn't need really an introduction here in Brussels um, because he's been around for, for a bit. Um, uh, he is a professor emeritus um, of international economics at the University of Copenhagen, worked for the Danish government um, uh, and many, many other uh, functions. Um, and he is currently um, the chair of the European uh, Fiscal Board. And I would say he's probably one of the uh, people in Europe that knows um, Europe's fiscal framework um, and the travails, let's say, of uh, the European fiscal framework in Europe's monetary union best. Um, and um, I think you've um, given lots of um, papers and written papers on the structure of the framework and so on. Also, also I mean, throughout your career, I would say. Um, that's why it's, I think, particularly interesting today to hear um, the key messages um, uh, by Niels um, that are given uh, in this annual report, which is the big yearly um, uh, recommendations that the European Fiscal Board uh, gives to, um, to the EU. Um, and, you know, following his presentation, we will have a little bit of time uh, for discussion here in the room. I, I think I will certainly add my, my remarks and comments, um, but, uh, but I'm sure um, there will be plenty of time also for all of you to ask questions and make remarks. Uh, without much further ado, Niels, welcome again, and the floor is yours. <clears throat> Thank you very much, uh, Guntram. I recall uh, I was here almost exactly a year ago uh, talking about our first uh, annual report by the European Fiscal Board uh, in the company of my colleague Matteo Schurek, who is also here today, and who will supplement about what I have said. Uh, um, the European Fiscal Board was set up basically two years ago on the basis of recommendations in the so-called Five Presidents Report. Uh, you may ask why is there a need for what has been called also a fiscal watchdog. The Commission is already there. It's supposed to be the fiscal watchdog for what goes on in fiscal affairs in, in all of Europe. But as we know, um, uh, most uh, economists uh, and politicians, for that matter, like fiscal rules, but they disagree how they should be designed, and they are never quite happy with how they actually work. So um, uh, the five presidents uh, decided that as a preliminary step in the long process of uh, deepening economic and monetary union, the key term they use, uh, there should be an independent fiscal council to uh, look at two things primarily. Um, one, how do the rules function uh, in the recent past where we have all the information mm -hmm. we require? And secondly, uh, are there any obvious recommendations to be made on the basis of that experience for reform of the rules and for fiscal governance? Uh, these were the two uh, parts of the mandate. You will see that quite comfortably the mandate is either about the past, 
uh, in this report that we have published now relates primarily to the year 2017, which is the latest one for which we have full information, or to the future, that is, to proposals about uh, the future, you will be disappointed that uh, I have nothing to say about the current debate about the draft budget plans which have just come out and the Italian situation. There may be some lessons to learn from what happened already in 2017, but that's very indirect. But let me go uh, straight to the uh, messages. And they were a little bit more critical this year than uh, last year, when we basically concluded that there were several imperfections, uh, so to speak, in the way the rules were implemented, uh, uh, that um, the Commission had shown, in some cases, maybe a flexibility we couldn't reproduce, replicating uh, the arguments uh, for a decision, of course, is a key role of an independent body. And if you don't understand quite why a decision was made, you raise the question. We did that also last year, but on balance, uh, uh, the uh, problems were relatively modest. And we were still, and that's the main point, really, uh, we were still in a fairly early phase of the post-crisis period, the deep <coughs> crisis, of course, that uh, was... Uh, uh, that marked the European Economic and Monetary Union from 2011 to, to 13, and, and with a considerable tightening of the fiscal rules. 2017 is more critical because we are now uh, looking at a year which was the first uh, year of uh, rapid growth in. Sorry. Okay. You have to. I don't get it to move. That's it. No, sorry. So, yeah, yeah, one back, yes. Yeah. Basically, we have <coughs> um, five short messages here in this uh, report. Uh, first one is that uh, the macroeconomy of the euro area really recovered very significantly in 2017, which was in retrospect probably the best year in the post-crisis period, including the present and maybe two th and 2019. Developments were better than expected, both in terms of real growth and inflation was also a little bit higher, getting out of the deflationary period that had existed before. The second point was that the Stability and Growth Pact was not really adjusted to fit those better times for the European Economic and Monetary Union. For two reasons, the rules are basically asymmetric, that is that Relief is given when uh, economy, economies are developing less well than expected, but there's no uh, compensating fact when they perform better than expected to do also more on the consolidation side. So the rules are asymmetric, and in addition to that, discretion was applied in some cases uh, quite liberally to soften requirements uh, further. So that's the basic uh, general comment we have about the rules. The use of the windfalls was lopsided. The uh, rapid growth in revenues uh, was used in a number of countries with high uh, debt uh, to spend, to revise expenditure plans upwards, whereas countries with favorable public finances uh, took advantage in the sense of a good economists to consolidate. Uh, that was the case in, in uh, Germany and the Netherlands. You could ask, uh, was there any uh, effort on the part of the independent fiscal councils that we have established since uh, the fiscal compact uh, uh, six, seven years ago in strengthening the public scrutiny? Uh, there was indeed, but I come <coughs> back to that in, in, uh, more, in more detail. Um, 
finally, we conclude on the basis of these points, particularly uh, number two and three, of course, that um, recent uh, experiments in uh, uh, making the uh, stability and growth pact more effective were not followed through uh, consistently, and an overhaul of the SGP is therefore needed in our view, and we propose such a simplification and some adjustments in EU uh, governance. This uh, graph basically repeats some of the information in numerical terms that I've just given. Um, but you will see that um, the revision, upward revision in 2017 of, of uh, economic forecasts was quite substantial. Some of the policy recommendations and the flexibility shown is related to this fact that uh, forecasting was not quite abreast of the recovery in the European uh, Union, but that was not the only reason, as I already said. Um, and we're a little bit more specific on this graph. Uh, one third of the higher revenues that accrued uh, due to uh, uh, high tax revenues were used to raise expenditures compared to plans. Uh, so in, in uh, summary, the um, 2017 was a missed opportunity to begin to consolidate and build fiscal buffers for less profitable times. We look at detailed country experience because one uh, part of our mandate is also to see ha has there been some differential treatment of countries. These large countries benefit uh, disproportionately. Um, you will see from this list, uh, of course, the abbreviations are very simple, but there are about seven countries or so involved, and, and they comprise both uh, some large countries and some medium-sized or smaller countries, Slovenia and, and Portugal. The general tenor here of some of these comments is that the um, framework was not used quite uh, in the way it was apparently intended. Uh, additional discretion was applied, benefit of the doubt was given. Um, uh, the uh, Commission didn't quite believe either in the expenditure rule framework, the benchmark it had set, and it adjusted upwards the medium term reference for that, thereby giving more room, for example, to Slovenia and Portugal. Italy had a, maybe a particularly uh, long list of uh, benefits uh, from the interpretations, generous reading of the structural balance indicator, carry forward of, of flexibility from earlier years, um, and no uh, uh, real discussion of whether the conditions for that had been met, and the quantification of some of the uh, extraordinary costs that were included was not quite in line with the past uh, practice. It would be too much to go into detail here, but the, the general tenor, I think, is, is quite uh, clear, and they all go in one direction. It's remarkable also that uh, France and Spain continue to follow a so-called nominal strategy, relying primarily on uh, meeting or getting uh, gradually below the 3% uh, deficits, as um, uh, France succeeded in doing, in that year, and Spain is expected to do uh, uh, next year. <coughs> so um, they did not meet either the structural uh, adjustment uh, requirements. Um, the rules were administered uh, with the intention partly of simplifying them, partly of showing more flexibility. And this uh, sounds like a contradiction in terms. And in fact, some of the simplifications uh, turned out not to be consistently applied, notably uh, 
the expenditure, so-called expenditure benchmark that you should keep your net expenditures uh, adjusted for uh, uh, discretionary changes in revenue in line with your longer-term growth uh, potential. Um, that was meant as a supplement and gradual replacement of the uh, structural deficit indicator, but it had difficulties uh, gaining ground and the Commission didn't sufficiently, in our view, insist on its use. Uh, and there were uh, some attempts, uh, nevertheless, to uh, clarify the reading of these two indicators when they were in conflict. On the other side, the plausibility tool uh, for the output gap doubts about this particular basic uh, uh, indicator for how much slack there is in the economy was applied, and that gave a lot of, of discussion at the, of technical issues at the political level, clouding more uh, substantial points. Um, so, um, uh, and in the middle of 2017, there was also an effort on the part of the Commission to introduce a margin of discretion on top of the ex existing uh, flexibility, and that was applied only for 2018, so uh, that will be discussed in our next report. So, uh, innovations uh, increased uh, complexity. Uh, they did, certainly did not succeed in any net simplification. The independent fiscal institutions that I already mentioned uh, are very useful uh, innovation. They have uh, improved the political debate in countries on fiscal issues. But when it comes to uh, countries that have difficulties meeting uh, requirements, uh, it is not so easy to find examples of uh, independent fiscal councils that have reacted strongly to this or reacted in a visible way uh, to this. We single out Italy and Romania as uh, exceptions to this classification. They both uh, spoke up about the realism of the forecasts of their respective governments uh, that they found too optimistic. But most of the others remained uh, fairly silent. There are several mm -hmm. reasons for this. Lack of resources, uh, lack of access to information, um, and also the simple matter that once you get into real negotiations about whether a country should adjust its policy or not, the, these discussions take part between the Commission and the uh, government in question. So. Uh, the Fiscal Council doesn't have much to say. It isn't listened to at that stage, uh, and that clearly weakens uh, any recommendations they may have. The Commission, uh, in a sense, added to some confusion about the uh, thrust of, uh, desirable thrust of fiscal policy by suggesting in November 2016 that there might be a need for up to a half a percent of GDP additional stimulus on the fiscal side for the year 2017. This was based, of course, on forecasts for 2017, which were considerably lower than what turned out to be the reality. But the problem with this recommendation was that even on the basis of the information available, it was clear that this uh, would go beyond the uh, reconciliation with the Stability and Growth Pact, which is in part to be observed at, at all times, uh, and the Commission was not able quite to suggest how uh, that could be done. Uh, but basically that it was, uh, uh, would have been a somewhat pro-cyclical action uh, to, uh, to act, and, and the, the Council did not back up uh, this particular suggestion. Uh, as it turned out, uh, on, uh, on the whole, the euro area uh, contracted very slightly uh, the fiscal stance in 2017, which is fine, but with the uh, differences in national behavior that I already mentioned that Italy and the countries in the excessive deficit procedure, France and Spain, did not or did not sufficiently consolidate, whereas Germany 
consolidated even further than uh, uh, it had planned. We also have a chapter in our report where we review the three-year period 2015, 16, and 17, because in 2015 the Commission uh, introduced uh, the application of flexibility in its interpretation of the fiscal rules. It got, of course, the approval of the Council before it could do that. Um, but uh, we find also that, uh, on balance, uh, this uh, flexibility has not worked particularly well for the reasons that I already mentioned, but we here review on the basis of a three-year period. And this also illustrates the point I made initially that uh, the, the problem was uh, really in, in this period was a mixture of uh, asymmetric rules and additional flexibility on top of this uh, uh, asymmetry. Um, and the uh, unusual events clause, uh, uh, events that are beyond the control of any government, uh, was also used uh, quite uh, frequently uh, and with much uh, discretion. Let me turn finally to uh, our proposed new uh, fiscal <coughs> framework. We think there is a need for a considerable simplification. And uh, we do propose to move from the current system of having uh, two fiscal anchors, both uh, deficits uh, anchor, a balanced budget over the cycle, uh, with an, uh, an actual deficit ceiling at 3%, and the uh, debt rule uh, to retain only the debt rule as the long-term anchor uh, for national fiscal policies. Um, we propose that um, the fiscal requirements should also be simplified to one basic fiscal requirement. Sorry. Thank you. Uh, to one fiscal requirement, namely the net expenditure growth uh, that uh, was intended also to be applied more widely but has so far failed uh, to do so. Instead of the current four fiscal requirements that uh, offer too many uh, leeways uh, in uh, escaping from those parts of the rules that you don't like. No rule system can work uh, entirely without uh, exceptions and uh, we therefore propose certainly a general escape clause in addition to uh, the uh, unusual events clause, which will also have to be retained. Um, but uh, the core the here point is here that uh, this escape clause should be applied only after a careful economic analysis has presented the situation. And one can see more clearly what is the political element in the decision and what is the economic analysis underlying it. And that um, brings me to the summary of the uh, proposal in the next one. The debt below 60% of GDP is the main objective. Fiscal requirement is net expenditure in line with the uh, capacity growth um, and assuring some uh, convergence towards the 60% over a 15-year period, but with, with some elements of uh, stabilization involved because uh, uh, both because of the revenue side in particular, and not uh, being applied uh, year by year, but over three-year uh, periods. Um, uh, when expenditure growth has exceeded this cap by more than 1% of GDP, then you uh, get into the compliance uh, situation, and you uh, either comply, compensate the deviation over time, or you invoke in exceptional circumstances and here you have the involvement of the independent uh, body. My final slide is uh, really about uh, 
surveillance in more in, in, in general, uh, elaborating also on this point between the economic analysis and the political elements which are inevitably there when you take the kind of decisions that uh, the Commission and the Council have to take from time to time. Um, in the ordinary course of, of events, uh, uh, the uh, role of a central agency, in this case the Commission, is to provide good advice to national governments. Uh, and here nobody contests, of course, uh, the role of the Commission uh, in that. Um, there's an intermediate function in surveillance, which I've called here the rating agency function, when the government supplies, or when the agency supplies information to the public, not least to the financial markets, about country performance, and the prospective compliance with rules. It is here, uh, uh, we think, that uh, a clear distinction between what is the uh, economic analysis of a country's situation, and what is the reason for giving possibly uh, uh, exemptions from the full compliance uh, with the rules. Here the uh, uh, economic analysis cannot stand alone, although it can go as far as offering advice, but we recognize that this has to be overridden from time to time by uh, an escape clause. The, the Commission has, uh, in fact, assumed an increasing role in this full rating agency function because it's very difficult to vote down a recommendation from the Commission under the so-called reverse qualified majority rule in the council. Um, so um, we think that the, uh, that imposes on the commission a need also to separate more clearly the uh, economic analysis from the political sure. decision. Finally, the uh, creditor lender function, which is currently discussed uh, under the heading of ESM involvement. Uh, obviously, when you have a program where uh, money is lent to a government on the basis of, of a program, uh, then the, uh, the need to assess very carefully the repayment capacity of the borrower uh, becomes important. And this is a role where the ESM is uh, claiming more of a role as a representative of future creditors, but where now there's a discussion on the, uh, how to divide the work or the responsibilities in, in supervising also sustainability analysis between the Commission and the ESM. That, I think, completes uh, what I wanted to say. Thank you very much. Well, th thanks a lot, N uh, Niels. Uh, there's a lot of material. Let's, let's go back to the slide before. Perhaps there's a lot of material um, that, uh, that can be discussed here. Um, and of course, I want to also get your, your comments and questions. But, but perhaps let me start by asking you uh, I think three uh, three questions. I mean, one is um, this focus on the expenditure rule, which you uh, you made very strongly, and which, which incidentally uh, seems to be sort of a big trend that was started a few years ago by by a paper uh, of Bruegel, um, where um, uh, my colleagues were pushing for for something like this, basically saying it's an it's a better variable to monitor. Uh, the structural balance has lots of problems. Uh, because we just don't know what what is potential output and so on and so on. so an expenditure rule was was deemed to be a simpler a simpler variable um, and a less procyclical or less error prone variable um, to to monitor now you showed actually that we already have that that rule so we we already have a net expenditure rule as part of the 
the toolbox um, that the EU can apply and that the Commission can apply. But then you said during your presentation that the Commission didn't really apply it. Um, and perhaps you can say just a few words why that was the case. I mean, first of all, where did you see it? Were there some examples uh, that you can perhaps share with us? Um, and perhaps zoom in a little bit why the Commission did not apply that rule, even though we as academics, we all think it's, it's perhaps a better and superior rule. Okay. okay perhaps you start with that sure. one. Yeah. Sure. Um, it's true the expenditure rule is not a new idea. It's been on the idea in uh, some of Brogel's uh, very valuable work. At the official level, it e even came up uh, from a couple of governments, including <coughs> the Dutch government, I think 2016. Um, it's long been the idea or that it should take over because it's more readily observable, as you said, than the structural deficit. Uh, the problem is that uh, the structural deficit is also in, in the secondary legislation as one right. of the parameters to watch. And uh, one can imagine and, and even have sympathy uh, with the Commission when it tries to explain to a country that uh, following an expenditure rule would be preferable. It's also in most cases, and we illustrate that a couple of times, it's tougher than the structural deficit rule in, in many of the cases. So uh, uh, countries have said, no, no, as long as we have the structural deficit rule, we prefer to stay with that. And that's, after all, Theoretically, it's a perfectly valid concept also. It's, it's in fact, was discussed right sure. at the start at Maastricht, uh, uh, actual deficit, uh, that's not the right measure because that's in, endogenous to some extent. But the uh, structural deficit measures more clearly uh, what is done by, uh, by policy. We should have that. But then, uh, of course, the objection was always, but we will have uh, troubles with all the national experts who will come and explain why... Uh, uh, the measure that we have calculated is not the correct one, why there are special features. Right. An expenditure rule uh, has the advantage that uh, it is more measurable. It is also, should also be uh, more easy to communicate in public to uh, a national electorate uh, than uh, a concept like the structural uh, deficit. So I think that these are some of the, the reasons why uh, uh, it's, it's had a difficult uh, passage in, over time, the, this new expenditure rule. It's in, in a way sometimes has been looked too strict relative to what <coughs> countries could otherwise uh, obtain. So uh, that, I think, is why we, we have uh, some examples also that uh, even on the uh, uh, expenditure rule, uh, there's some uh, uh, inobservable things because you have to relate sure. it to something. You have to divide it by the uh, potential growth, uh, level of pot yeah. potential capacity uh, output. And that is also open to, uh, to doubt. Some of the same doubts, of course, that ultimately showed up in the structural deficit one. And it's in, in this uh, use of the expenditure benchmark that we found some slippages in the commission practice that it said, no, no, we think your estimate of potential growth is now uh, too low. Uh, it's marked too much by the average, uh, including crisis years when it was low, obviously, right. we, we adjusted upwards ad hoc. And that gives a lot of extra room suddenly uh, if you adjust up the potential growth. Then you can afford to but, have but, a larger... But that problem, I mean, uh, so, so if you think that the Commission manipulates the, the growth numbers and so on for political purposes, I mean, that happens as well if you only have that as a rule. I mean, so, that, so, uh, that, that is so true. I'm trying uh, to understand that, sort of what do that, we gain, but really. But the, the, I mean, the room so. is less uh, important for uh, 
in a certain sense, interpretation than is the case. Uh, right. if, when you would lay down uh, that it is, in fact, the long-term growth rate and not uh, something that you can adjust ad hoc, uh, the uh, potential growth, level of potential output. Okay, so, so perhaps my second question is um, on, uh, on the role of the Commission um, in, in the surveillance um, process. And uh, I think you were here in this last slide, you sort of discussed that a little bit and you emphasized, well, um, that there needs to be sort of the separation between the more analysis part that should be as neutral as possible. Um, and uh, I guess the, um, the more decision-making part where I guess you see some sort of a political um, uh, role also because of reversed qualified, uh, qualified uh, majority. Um, and you mentioned reversed qualified majority, and for those that don't remember, so reversed qualified majority means that a commission recommendation to the council is deemed adopted unless there is a majority, a qualified majority uh, in the council against that, uh, that, uh, that decision. And that puts a lot of the burden uh, of proof and a lot of also the, let's say, the political judgment in, th in the commission, right? Because the commission, if the commission comes out with a recommendation, it's actually quite uh, even more difficult than before uh, to change that recommendation. Now, of course, the alternative uh, would be to, uh, to reconsider uh, qualified, reverse qualified majority voting and go back to, to qualified majority voting um, and uh, thereby allow the commission to become less political and much more neutral interpreter of, of the rules and um, trying to give even-handed even -handed recommendations and then let the council take, uh, take a political decision. And I'm asking you that question, I mean, because you've been around and you know this debate for a long time, but I think also because in your report, I mean, it comes out quite strongly. You, I mean, it, just to give the names of the countries that you men single out here, Italy, France, Spain, on the one hand, Germany on the other, sounds sort of familiar. Um, and then on Italy, what you said, well, the commission made a generous reading of structural balance, and that's, by the way, 2017. So generous reading of structural balance, Safety uh, margins were not, 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 not observed in the carryover from last year. The quantification of refugee-related costs, I think you put it politely, was not in line with standard practice or something yes. like this. So, so basically you're saying here the commission was just very generous with Italy in, in 2017 um, and took a political decision, right? I mean, that's what you're saying here. So. Um, so, so is that the right institution to take that political decision in the end? Uh, one important issue, of course, is uh, transparency, whether it's fully clear why this decision was taken. Uh, uh, so if you have a body that has as much uh, power to, to in, in, in practice to take uh, the ultimate decision as the commission <coughs> currently does, uh, it should be under the obligation that uh, one can subsequently uh, reconstruct why was this decision taken. Was it for a clearly a political reason? Why, that, that should be stated. So uh, I think much could be solved by uh, greater <coughs> transparency. Uh, I don't think we are advocating a return to uh, the situation which existed before the crisis, uh, uh, before 2003, in fact, when we saw that uh, the majority in the council was not really able to administer uh, or accept with uh, 
qualified, they will just accept with a qualified majority the uh, uh, Commission's recommendation in the case when France and Germany at the same time had transgressed the 3% and had support of the two high debt countries of Belgium and Italy at the time. That was enough. Uh, that stopped it. And, and that was why I think uh, governments themselves recognized we do need uh, not to take this decision as a simple political majority vote amongst us. But the, the, the implication should not be that uh, it should then be taken in a somewhat intransparent way under the cover of, of uh, apparently uh, fairly intractable <coughs> economic arguments. Uh, so that is the reason why we, uh, we, stress, uh, we stress this point. And it's in a way perfectly uh, uh, natural reaction for the Commission to become extra cautious when it feels it has as much responsibility as it currently has in the system. Uh, but it, it should be more careful in, in, our, in our view in then explaining uh, these decisions and, and should not give rise to too many examples of cases when um, that is very hard to reconstruct. Mm. Perhaps my last uh, question uh, to you before I open up is on, uh, on the point you made that there's not, not enough consolidation in good times and you know that 2017 was, was a year wasted. Um, I think that's the term you used. Um, now, now, first of all, if you, if you could justify that a little bit more with um, sort of the, uh, the data um, and the way you, you interpret the economic situation in 2017. When you talk with the current Italian government, they would point to uh, a very substantial slack and, uh, and a pretty significant output gap, um, which would give for a very different reading, um, of course, um, of the situation uh, than the one that, that you seem to endorse, which is to say, well, um, 2017 uh, was a year where we were actually growing quite well, um, including in Italy, and so it was a moment to consolidate. And I guess if you take that as your starting point, also 2018 and 2019, we, I mean, the projections, we are in a fairly strong, robust growth phase. I mean, for sure for the Eurozone as a whole, I think we are now um, 22, 22 quarters of, of growth, um, so, so we're really quite a bit uh, out of the recession now. Um, and so, so if not if not now, when is the moment to, to consolidate? So, so perhaps you can give us a little bit more of a sense of um, why was it wasted? Do you really think it was wasted? Is there perhaps still a slack and a negative output gap in some economies? And if there was, um, wouldn't the Italian government actually have a point in saying, well, we want to use a little bit more fiscal space to, to support the economy? Obviously, the output gap is subject to some uh, uncertainty. Uh, uh, the estimates of the Commission, we, we don't produce our own figures. We rely <coughs> primarily on the uh, excellent empirical work done in, in TT ECFIN. Uh, that suggests that there is no uh, output gap uh, in, in, in Italy. <coughs> and what is beyond doubt is also that uh, the Italian e economy has not been growing fast, but it's been growing faster than any measure of the growth of potential output for uh, the last uh, three years or so. And that does mean that uh, uh, there's a pro-cyclical element uh, in expanding uh, expenditures at the present time or expanding the deficit at the present time. Mm. So um, that is a reason. You're quite right that Italy is uh, not an outlier, but it's uh, the weakest among uh, the large countries, certainly, in this uh, period. 
for the others, the argument is, is uh, clearer and stronger that uh, uh, for France and Spain, in particular Spain, uh, uh, that more consolidation could uh, have taken place, uh, particularly in 2017. But the reason that 2017 is interesting is that it also has lessons for 2018 and 19, because that situation of uh, catching up relative to the potential growth uh, is also a feature of uh, this year and even of next year, despite the recent downward revisions that are taking place in the Commission's autumn forecast. We are still, uh, for the euro area as a whole, maybe not for Italy, I'm not uh, discussing that uh, at this moment, but, but certainly uh, there's a tendency still to grow faster than, than uh, output, potential output. Uh, so when we presented... Uh, uh, some of this discussion uh, in the, uh, the official <coughs> level, of course, uh, quite a few people said, but it, now it's clearly too late to talk about consolidation. Uh, we have passed it and the growth rate is We've coming down. We've passed the peak. we passed the peak. It's late, but it's not too late, even if we uh, apply it in, in the current context. But it was certainly high time in 2017, we would argue that. And, and we do have uh, quite a few uh, more detailed tables in, in the report that can uh, underpin that. Okay, let me collect uh, questions, remarks, yeah, comments, and uh, I see, uh, Matthias, perhaps we, we first collect two, three questions, and then... Uh, yeah, but I mean, I think uh, preserve, a, reserve a little bit your powder dry so that you can reply also to some comments that, that, that we get. First, the gentleman there in the back. <coughs> Slower, uh, slowing down in 
so, so let's collect a few more questions, and I'm sure this one was, of course, the European fiscal stance is an important question. I think <coughs> you did mention it, but I think it's, it's useful to dwell a little sure, bit further into good. that. But let's collect a few more, and I see Gregory Kleist. So I wonder if you have some more details uh, about this, because for instance, in our paper, we, we didn't reply to, to, that, to that question. And again, we said that uh, the best that the fiscal rule can do, and the incentive to follow them is to provide a good rules that provide good good recommendation for, for fiscal policy. But it's true that uh, sanction could help, but we don't find the, the magic formula. So I wonder if you, if you found the magic formula. Yeah, the magic formula on sanctions, that would be interesting. Perhaps you would also want to comment whether the magic moment has come now to apply sanctions. <laughs> uh, but uh, I, I'd be curious to have your views on that. Mar Marek Dabrowski from Brugger. Marek Dabrowski, Brugger. Uh, I have uh, some feeling of deja vu when I uh, follow <laughs> your presentation of the SGP. Uh, it happened <coughs> some 40 years ago that in the early stage of my career, I was involved in research, empirical research, how central, the system of central planning in socialist economy really works, not on paper, but in reality. And a special focus on bargaining mechanism. And basically, I find the same phenomena, uh, that uh, you know, lower level lost, at some point, interest in its own performance, but. <coughs> its energy is going to, to get the best condition from, from the higher level. And the main weapon is information. It's, uh, it's evidently that, that with all credit to professional capacity of the commission, uh, when things come to assessment of potential output, output gap, and ex ante, this is uh, big area of, of subjective judgment and uh, excellent uh, field for, for, for bargaining, for manipulation, etc. Uh, so from this point of view, I very much <coughs> sympathize with, with your proposal to simplify. Uh, mm. uh, whatever we can think about expenditure uh, target, it still is uh, more, uh, more uh, um, understandable for the general public, uh, less uh, um, less uh, potentially manipulated, etc. But my general <laughs> my general uh, um, perce uh, perception as the <coughs> person who was some to some degree involved in uh, researching how SGP is working historically is that. Whatever rules we establish, there is very low political appetite for, for enforcing the, those rules. And so I think that this is a problem. Perhaps more generally, if we go beyond fiscal sphere, we look on other area of, of European governance, there is also limited appetite, especially on this peer review cross-country level to, to 
enforce rules against neighbors. And so we can speculate why some eight or 10 years ago was clear that was more than 20 countries under ex uh, excessive deficit procedures, so nobody was interested to uh, penalize neighbor. Now we have much less, but still um, it's a reluctance. And I think that <coughs> even if we come back to what Guntram suggested to from reverse um, qualified majority to, to qualified majority as it was before 2013 or 2011. Uh, I, I think that it will not change nothing because commission is not on the moon. It's, it's, <coughs> it's influenced by political forces in the rest yeah. of member states. So um, the question is uh, uh, whether we can do something to change the situation. Um, at some point, I, I thought that coming back to market discipline would help, but uh, also developments of, of the period of bailout also yeah. demonstrated okay. that there is no much appetite for an enforcing market discipline. So do you think uh, any you know, way forward from this trap? Yes, uh, that's, um, that's a very big, uh, big question, obviously. I mean, perhaps just on this point on the reverse qualified majority and just to clarify what I said, I think I'm not saying that the commission is not uh, influenced by politics. I mean, I think the key point I'm, I'm making is there is a question of the transparency and who takes the decision. And yes, a political commission is, of course, influenced by the member states, but we actually have extremely little, little information on why a certain decision was taken within the commission. While if that same decision was taken in the council, there would at least be a, a, a proper political debate um, that would be more or less public. I mean, the, the council decision and voting would, would be made public. So, so I think there is a difference here in terms of transparency and clarity on how political decisions are taken, um, which I think is actually quite important. But to think that you can totally isolate from politics these decisions, I think, uh, would, is wrong. But anyway, that's my view, and I'm sure you will want to add. Let's have one more, and then... Um, okay. um. Jean-Victor Louis. Uh, I would like to know uh, uh, what kind of appreciation we can have uh, about the role of national independent uh, committee in this field, uh, because... Uh, it has been said and, uh, that uh, the independence uh, is not evident uh, and not well organized. Uh, and, uh, <coughs> what is, for example, the role of this committee in Italy? Uh, was the position of the government. Okay, so, so I think that's enough material um, for you, certainly. And, but I think Matthias wanted to add. Matthias also, yes. Uh, let let Matthias perhaps, and then you have the last. Okay. Matthias, I. <coughs> I had a perhaps dubious privilege of being on the receiving end of, uh, of fiscal rules in, uh, in the Polish government. And let me maybe answer and, and comment uh, and group together some of these, uh, some of the things that have been just said. Uh, I don't think we will find a perfect solution uh, to the political, the problem of the fact that nobody wants this responsibility and for a good reason. Uh, if a decision is found to be a ruthless enforcer, it will <coughs> generate backlash in member states 
because it's an elected uh, crew or whatever. Uh, if we have a um, council taking these decisions, uh, this will also uh, be seen as um, as a whatever uh, a German dominancy over national politics and, and, and the rights of whoever will suffer uh, due to budget cuts. Uh, and the answer to this, I think, is is that's one of the key reasons why I I like uh, expenditure rule. The answer to this is internalize as far as possible the rules into into domestic decision making uh, I mean we saw this in brexit we saw I mean we see it uh, all the time that it's, it's just too easy to outsource the responsibility and blame Brussels for what well, we need to do this because Brussels tells us uh, but it's it's a road to nowhere uh, and uh, we need to whatever stop spending in good times because it's good for us um, and the problem with current rules is that it's impossible to do. Uh, it, it's just so complicated, so fuzzy, and um, and uh, structural balance itself is unexplainable to the general public. Uh, and in a sense, we have to outsource it to Brussels because no one can calculate it or explain it to his own prime minister. Uh, with expenditure rule, that's doable. Um, of course, it will bring other uh, issues. I can already see some uh, some problems down the line. Uh, and new exceptions and so forth. Uh, but, but it's still simpler, and as a result, it's easier to internalize it into domestic politics, uh, reducing the burden and the risk of you creaking because of this, um, uh, of this external enforcement problem. Hmm. Okay, yes. Plenty to discuss indeed. <laughs> Your area of fiscal stance was the first question. Uh, it's true I didn't mention it uh, uh, the term, that, but I did uh, refer to the Commission's proposal in, in 2016 to have a stimulus beyond what the sum of the national recommendations implied uh, uh, for the year 2017. Uh, the problem with the UAA fiscal stance uh, is, of course, that uh, it sits somewhat uneasily with a system that's otherwise based on national recommendations. Uh, the original reason why it was suggested, and, and it was discussed at great length at, at Maastricht, was that uh, one should ask oneself always the question, when we have summed up all these national recommendations, does uh, ma overall macroeconomic thrust of policy uh, give, give us more or less what we want? Is there the right balance with the monetary policy? But that uh, then requires that you subsequently are prepared to say, who should then make up for this uh, shortfall, maybe in expenditure in, in a year where we are still in recession? Uh, you have to have also some rules for that, and, and then you get into conflict with stability and growth pact. And in all the years uh, since the crisis, in fact, uh, there has been uh, uh, such a, a conflict. Uh, to take only the, the most recent example, which we discussed in our June report, for the first time, in fact, for the year 2019, if you sum up the recommendations uh, that uh, uh, were made uh, in the spring of uh, this year for 2019, they give approximately, in the view at least of the European Fiscal Board, an appropriate Euro-area fiscal stance in the aggregate. But there are still major problems of the distribution between uh, one and the other. 
So, uh, it, but, it's, but it's by chance that the it, that, that was a bit by chance, and, and uh, <laughs> that is why. Um, right. But we did take the opportunity to say that at least the aggregate stance was was all right. But it's right. Uh, it really the euro area fiscal stance only really makes sense if you have some instruments that are jointly sure. managed. Uh, if you have a central fiscal capacity of, of some sort, I come back uh, uh, come back to that. Because then you uh, then you can decide at the, the uh, your area level uh, what to do. Uh, the um, sanctions, Gregory uh, Clay uh, asked about that. Uh, until very recently, of course, now that we may see sanctions, I don't know, but uh, we have had the impression that sanctions were unlikely to be applied, uh, and, and they were. And in a few cases we examined, 2016 certainly, uh, they were not applied or they were reduced to zero uh, by the Commission. Uh, and we think there's a limit to how long you can have the fiction that you have sanctions in the system, but you don't have them. So um, uh, we do discuss, um, mm -hmm. both in, in our previous annual report and, and hinted at it this time also, uh, that one way of, of having sanctions that may have be a little bit more appealing and effective uh, would be to have positive sanctions in the sense that uh, in order to qualify for any uh, joint support mechanisms that may or may not come with the next uh, uh, MFF plan for 2021 and 27, if you qualify for that, and that seems to be the general view also, then you have to meet the fiscal rules. There's a complementarity in that sense between meeting the fiscal rules and being part of a, of a joint scheme. And that offers, in our view, some uh, potential. But as long as there's no uh, political readiness to discuss uh, such a mechanism of any size, of course, that is uh, somewhat a uh, dead letter. I, I hope it doesn't remain that way. But that, that would be our, our comment on that. There are some authors who uh, we note say, why not give up this idea of sanctions? And then you can focus strictly on, on more sensible ideas of, of discussing policy. We think sanctions are potentially uh, valuable and important, showing some joint determination. But, but uh, a few more years without ever getting close to applying them would be uh, detrimental. But we hope this uh, other one, more positive one, uh, works. So, um, so, so if I may, that almost sounds like a recommendation to apply sanctions. What you just said. I mean, so if you don't apply it, they will become useless yeah, then, then uh, a few more years. Nobody so. has any uh, respect for it. I mean, in, initially, it was discussed all the time when, when uh, the Maastricht Treaty was set up. Uh, sure. Sanctions. It was seen as a realistic possibility, <coughs> but it, it hasn't been uh, really under any system. Uh, it wasn't in 2003 when the governments were deciding on it, and it hasn't really been uh, since. Um, now, uh, uh, peer reviews, uh, reluctance, uh, uh, market discipline, interaction with market discipline. One problem that certainly hasn't been solved uh, that Professor Dabrowski raised is, uh, is there a role still for market discipline? Uh, the whole rules-based system was set up by, as a sign of distrust in the market mechanism, in the market pressure, market discipline. It was uh, a more intelligent solution. Uh, I do remember these discussions uh, very well, that uh, we couldn't rely on the markets. They were too patient, and then suddenly they became too anxious. We can do better than that, intelligent rules or whatever you call it. Uh, but it, there was still the hope that the markets would look at uh, the rules and the policy discussions and take more note of them. That uh, hasn't really uh, happened. 
Uh, and we've still seen, of course, in, in 2011-12, very strong examples of market discipline. We may see them uh, again, and, and uh, uh, that may be unavoidable. And it's, in, in my view, a bit unfortunate that we have not been able to, within a, a system of, of governments, to devise some system of advice and uh, monitoring <laughs> surveillance that could substitute uh, in a better way for it. Can I ask you on this point, sorry to interrupt you all the time, but I think it's an, an important discussion. I mean, can, can I ask you whether you really consider the fiscal framework as we see it currently as a substitute to mark, uh, market discipline or as a complement? Because in, in the chart that you show here about, you know, the commission's role as being... <coughs> Uh, uh, informing markets, I, 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 the second role, the rating agency role, or mm -hmm. some, whatever you called it. I mean, it is really a, signal, a signaling role. It is a signaling role of political distance also, right? I mean, it's a signaling role of political distance between the consensus in Europe and the one or two countries out. And in the current situation on Italy, I, I, I can ensure you that many market participants have been looking extremely closely at the kind of signals um, that are get, coming out of the Commission uh, to get a sense of this political distance, because that's what they price. Um, and by the way, I think as a more general uh, remark, perhaps, on this, on this point, I mean, I don't think market discipline doesn't work. I think market discipline is in full oh, yeah. swing. I mean, we see it in full swing. Uh, also, prior to the recent crisis, I mean, there was, of course, risk differentiation across countries. Uh, and risk pricing across countries, um, I think it didn't work pre-Eurozone uh, crisis. And you can have a long speculation why that was the case. Was it the great moderation, right, so that uh, suppressed risk premium all, all over the place? Or was it, um, uh, uh, let's say, uh, bailout expectations? Um, I think perhaps a combination of the two. I mean, that we can, we can have a long debate. But it seems to me that since the beginning of the, the crisis, we do have risk pricing in, in European so, uh, sovereign bond markets. And yes, we do have market discipline, because um, when Matteo Salvini says, uh, and I think he's been uh, saying this publicly, I'm having spreads for breakfast, he said that, of course it means that he looks at the spreads. So the spreads do matter. I mean, so I, I don't think we don't have market discipline. I think we have, on of the contrary, course. we do have market discipline. Of course but perhaps have. is it complement or substitute? I mean, perhaps you can say a little bit more. Ideally, the is, uh, they are, the two are, are complements. Uh, but the, 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 the art is really to get markets to react a bit earlier in the process. Take note also when imbalances begin uh, to build up, when they're not yet uh, at right. the threatening level that we now see with Italy. That, of course, has become even more remote uh, after the uh, actions that were taken by the uh, ECB in, in 2012, sure. which uh, uh, drastically narrowed the spreads and even greater success than uh, most people had expected uh, could, could ever happen, that you could get without any actual operations, so simply uh, having this as a possibility that there was still a, a lender of last resort, provided that uh, that was, of course, the thing that was not sufficiently stressed, provided that the country was prepared to undertake a program adjustment. Uh, but that, uh, it, it worked all the same without a program adjustment uh, for, for Italy and Spain and, and for others very quickly. And you can argue that it has worked in a sense uh, too well uh, for a long time. 
So the, the artist to, to get market, uh, the complementarity of market discipline uh, in at an earlier stage of the adjustment uh, process, that would mm. be my, my answer to it. Of course you need it, and, and I think many, many governments, uh, in a way, uh, I wouldn't say they're comfortable, but they, they know there is a bad cop out there uh, right. who can do uh, some unpleasant job that they're not prepared to do. Um, Professor Victor Louis asked uh, about uh, the uh, independent fiscal institutions. I think they are an important innovation, and, and uh, they uh, certainly have created useful debate and, and monitoring in, in a number of countries. There are only a few of them that are sufficiently well-developed to really challenge the government in terms of its macroeconomic realism and even more the, the budgetary, uh, the realism of their budgetary forecasts. We have such examples, we discussed in, in some detail the United Kingdom, whatever you may think about political institutions in the United Kingdom. In this area, they have taken one remarkable decision to outsource uh, from the UK Treasury to an independent fiscal body. And that has, in this very difficult period, I think, made the discussion of fiscal forecasts less uh, difficult and conflictual than it would otherwise have been. We have the Netherlands, where there's also a very strong fiscal council. But most of them have difficulties, not so much maybe in just assessing whether a government is overly optimistic on the very big general macroeconomic picture, but on the impact of, of uh, government budgets. But it's encouraging to see that the Italian uh, uh, Fiscal Council, indeed again now and in the recent uh, presentation of the 2019 budget, did as it did in, in the 2017 that we discussed here, they did present a critical review of the government's macroeconomic forecast as unrealistic in the present case also because the government's calculations of how the policy changes would work were unrealistic. So that was quite a powerful critique, but it, it may not uh, be enough uh, at a time when uh, there's maximum pressure to implement a new policy. Of course, uh, we cannot have any uh, illusions uh, about that. So. Okay. Um. I think uh, I think we've had a serious discussion of the of the fiscal rules and of your report, and um, I think uh, that was um, very interesting and uh, very enlightening for me at least. Um, uh, please uh, join me in thanking Professor Niels Tigerson for Thank his you. presentation.